Rosalem's first fabulous rom-com, called Natalie Tan's Book of Luck and Fortune, was picked up for TV, and it looks like the second, just out, Vanessa Yu's magical Paris tea shop could well find its way to the small screen as well. That's wonderful success for a writer early in her career, but Roselle put in a dedicated apprenticeship to achieve her, quotes, overnight success. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and in today's Binge Reading podcast, Roselle talks about what it took to strike success with her first novel, how she kept going when even her teachers told her her English wasn't good enough to be a writer, and the delights of eating out in Paris all in the interests of research for her book, of course. You'll find a full transcript of our conversation at the joysofbingereading.com website, along with links to Roselle's books and her website. Join us there. Leave us your comments and suggestions. We love to hear from you. But now, here's Roselle. Hi there, Roselle, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. We've just been chatting before we went on air and you tell me that you're in the depths of a Canadian winter. We're just in the middle of our summer here, so we're right at the opposite ends of the pole. <laughs> Look, your debut rom-com was called Natalie Tan's Book of Love and Fortune and it sold straight through to TV, to Netflix, I believe. That's a very big success for a debut author. And then I noticed that the second book, the one we're going to be discussing today, which is Vanessa Yu's Magical Paris Tea Shop, it's already been picked by one of the Shondaland editors. Now, Shondaland, for those who aren't familiar with it, is a company that is doing a tremendous amount of popular TV. They've just had the Bridgerton series on Netflix. So you have to conclude that that second book has got a good chance of continuing to head for the small screen as well. From that, people might kind of assume that it's been a very straightforward and easy road for you, but in fact, it wasn't quite that simple, was it? Can you tell us what has preceded what people might see as an overnight success? Natalie Tan's Book of Luck and Fortune was my, I think, eighth manuscript that I've written. Yeah. And the ones that I've written before were not good in that I had to get them out of my system to be able to write this book. And I had, it's, it took me about two years to revise this book. Well, a little under two years to revise this book with my agent too. My gosh. So when you say you had to get them out of your system, were they in the same frame of a kind of fabulous rom-com genre? It wasn't. The other books that I've written were fantasy, some were romance. I find that With Natalie Tan, it's more women's fiction because it doesn't have the amount of kissing and all of that that you would categorize as a traditional romance. And as for the magical realism and the fabulism, I decided to incorporate that because I find that 
culturally, it makes a lot of sense because there's so much superstition in my culture. Yes, yes. How how did you keep going during those eight manuscripts? I mean, people listening who might think that they'd like to write, you know, write a book, probably don't feel like they're going to write eight before they get published. So how did you keep yourself going during that period? Sheer stubbornness. You can accomplish so much if you're just stubborn enough to to think that you will eventually get there. And that is the one piece of advice. Like it's you can call it perseverance, you can call it stubbornness or bullheadedness, but it's this this idea that you will eventually get there if you just try hard enough and just keep writing. And when you were at that beginning stage, what did that phrase get there mean for you? Simply to get one book, book published or what were your expectations at the beginning? It's small steps. First, get an agent, get a literary agent, then eventually get a book. And for me, when I started, that was the goal to get a book deal get an agent and get a book deal. Now, I I think more long-term is in have a career. My dream now is to have a bookcase or first a bookshelf, then a bookcase full of my published books and hopefully different editions in different languages. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. Look, both of these stories are anchored in an Asian family dynamic. It's Fascinating stuff. I mean, it happens in all cultures, but perhaps slightly more pronounced in Asian families, intergenerational loyalties and obligations, the affection and conflict that arises from those things, and also a very strong, fabulous theme, as we've discussed, as well as food and sweet, light romance. This is territory that you know well. Tell us how your own background interweaves with the Yu family, for example, in Paris Tea Shop. That is a very meddling, loud family, like extended family, which I would kind of, I'd say, loosely based on my family. And that they love, they love hard, they love big. And it's it's that they'll smother you with love and you know that their intentions are just, they want the best for you. It's just... The, you know what they think is the best for you may not necessarily be the best for you, but you know they're they're coming at it from a position of love. Yeah, and Vanessa has inherited this gift of prophetic um, sayings, and she doesn't really want it because it's interfering with her life. So she's in this very difficult position where she's trying to reject something that everybody else thinks in the family is an absolute blessing and boon, isn't she? It is. It's more, it's again, kind of a, I wouldn't say a metaphor, but it symbolizes what, like with Asian parents, with my parents in general, they want their expectations for what I should be or where I should be versus what I want for myself can differ in that they would expect, you know, be a doctor or be a lawyer or somewhere along that that line. My sister followed that to a T. She became a really good accountant like a corporate accountant and she's followed that and then you have me where I wanted to be a writer and an artist and that's not at all in in line with what they're hoping for or expecting it's the same with Vanessa yeah yeah that must have been a very difficult transition for you in earlier years 
It is because I, now that I'm older, I kind of feel bad for my parents who had to parent me and that I was such a different kind of child. And that they're like, oh, okay, go take piano lessons or take organ lessons. And I'm like, I don't really want that. I want painting lessons. I want art lessons, which was completely not what they were used to. There weren't artists in my family. They're yeah. all a bunch of bankers. Like they they worked in they worked in banks and they some were entrepreneurs, but this the kind of creativity, like having a job or a career in the creative field was completely like foreign to them. So how do they feel about it today? I don't think they still realize just how hard it is to carve a place for yourself in the creative field and how hard, like how much obstacles you you go through to succeed in it. I think they look at it as, oh, that's really a nice thing that she has right now. But I don't know if they know the true extent of like what it really took to get, you know, a book out and how many rejections it took, like from editors and from agents to even get to this point. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that maybe when Natalie Tan finally appears on Netflix that they might then think, oh, wow, she's made it? I don't know. My dad wants a cameo. At this point, it's not with Netflix, but like the production company, John Wells. Oh, um, okay. Mm-hmm. He's, he's more known for Shameless and Animal Kingdom and West Wing. That's what his company has developed. And they're... We're at the pilot stage where we have a writer and I think we're trying to secure a director as well. So it's not with Netflix, but it's getting close. Everything that I, the thing with Hollywood is that it moves really fast or it can move really slow. And I thought publishing in general is a very slow industry. (laughs) Yes. Look, we've mentioned that food is part of it and it's obvious that you absolutely adore food. There's food pretty well on every page. And I was left wondering actually whether you actually did like to cook yourself or whether you make it your business to find great chefs and eat out a lot. A little of column A and a little of column B in that when I was younger, my dad is the cook in the family. That's why Natalie Tan was dedicated to him. He's the one who would cook and he would tell me in the morning, hey, I'm making this for dinner. Make sure you take this out from the freezer and, you know, do the prep work ahead of time. So that by the time he gets home from work, everything will be ready for the cook. So I've learned how to cook from him and that I've always wanted to see how food gets prepared and how it's made. Given the preference, though, I prefer to eat than to put the effort into making something (laughs) because there's a formula of it takes two hours of toil and labor to present a meal that would be eaten in like under 10 minutes. And that, that inequality doesn't sit well with me where I would prefer to be the one consuming it. (laughs) So when we went, so when we went to Paris, I made sure I ate everything that I could. Like everything we walked everywhere. I am the, I look like that. I look like that child with my grubby little hands against the clear glass window, staring inside to see what is going on in there. Like for bakeries, for pat- patisseries, everything. I just wanted to go in and 
you know, it helped that I could speak a bit of French and I could understand and read that I had no problems going in and out, checking everything out, going into chocolate shops and candy shops and being able to order and ask what I wanted. And yes, I ate, I tried to eat everything that I could that was listed in that book. It sounds like there's another book there of your guide to Paris food. (laughs) I made sure that I, we booked the reservation at a Michelin star restaurant while we were in Paris. Yeah. I had to, I don't buy fancy purses or designer stuff, but I will save money to make sure that I tasted it. And we went to, we had a dinner at Atelier de Joël Robuchon in uh, Saint-Germain. And it was just, the food there was just like incredible. And it's one of those things where if I have to write about food, when I want to write about food, I should be able to try everything and convey that on the page. Yeah, and I think you do, actually. I mean, I, I think that you do. So that, that's wonderful. For those of us who probably won't ever get to go there, it's a, it's a lovely little bit of armchair travel in itself. Look, there's a strong sense of other realms as well, as we've mentioned with Vanessa, that this fabulous side and she's got this prophetic gift. You say that growing up in a household where Chinese superstition was infused with Filipino Catholicism gave you the sense of of another realm. Is is that an accurate way of describing it? It is because when I grew up, I had my mom telling me these things that are not at all rooted in actual medicine or science. And my mom would be like, oh, you want to get taller? That's easy. Just jump up and down and your body will stretch. And I'm like, huh, really, mom? (laughs) Really? Or things like if you're ever sleeping, like not in your house or somewhere else or even in your house, make sure that when you're asleep that your feet are not facing the window. And I'm like, why? And she's like, because the bad spirit will come away, pluck you by your toes and like take you, pull you out of the window and gobble you up eventually. And I'm like, oh, okay. Not really. I don't really believe in that. But it's it's little things like that where it's like, how could you not think that there was magic and there's magic in, you know, ordinary in the ordinary world? Yeah. These books are both about young Asian women finding their own paths, honouring their own stories while still fulfilling family obligations as much as they can. And I think that's reflected in a wider area for you, that you're also passionate about diversity and equity in publishing as well, aren't you? And I suspect that, tell us what it was like coming to Canada as a young child and having to integrate into a completely different culture. I was really lucky in that in the Philippines because it was colonized by the U.S. English was definitely like present. I wouldn't say it's the first language, but it's it's present. So while it's true, I've written it in my bio and it is true. I grew up watching Hulk Hogan and the WWF wrestlers on TV that taught me a bit of English. Yeah. So by the time I came here, a lot of my cousins ended up having to take ESL classes. And when I got here, the first thing I had to figure out was be more confident in English and also start learning French. (laughs) (laughs) That's the other thing. And it's growing up 
going through the school system, being an immigrant, I've been told many times by my English teachers that writing is not something I can do because my English isn't good enough. And it's to this day, I'm still tripping up a little bit on when it comes to tenses because there's no tenses in Tagalog or Chinese. There just isn't. It's just the date or, you know, time is framed in a different way. Yes. Yeah. So it's like, instead of saying, I walk to the store, you, you would say, I walked to the store yesterday. So it would give you a time frame. Okay. When it happened. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, tenses still trip me up a little bit. And it's, it's really one of those things where if, if you get told no so many times that whatever you're writing won't be interesting or whatever, like people will tell you all of these things. If you get told no enough times, it'll either break you or make you more stubborn to, to prove them wrong. And I am in the stubborn to prove them wrong group. Very obviously. So you, you expressed this desire to write even when you were at school, did you? I did. I was that girl in my all-girls Catholic high school that slipped my friend's pages of my saucy romance novel in math class. Yes, that was me. (laughs) What a gorgeous picture in itself. (laughs) Look, tell us something about your creative process. Has it changed over, I mean, you've really now written 10 manuscripts, haven't you? You're probably in your 11th, we'll get onto that in a moment, but you've probably completed at least 10 manuscripts. Has your creative process changed during that period of writing? It has, because before I thought writing is easy. You just sit and you write whatever you want. You don't need a plan. Just sit in front of the computer and just type, 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 and you'll figure it out later. And I didn't, Realize that this wasn't as good a method for me until I signed with Jenny, my agent, my current agent. And she's, she taught me that if you outline now and plan things, you don't have to spend so much time revising it later. And I'm like, wow, this is more efficient. Yeah, I think I should start doing this. And so I've started writing outlines. I've started writing a query letter of a novel I haven't written yet before I even start writing it. Because that way it teaches, it teaches me to get to the core of the novel quickly and to have a pitch, a very concise pitch of what the novel is about. And I find that really helpful. And lately for the past few novels, I've started bullet journaling, which helps me plan everything out even more. So tell me about bullet journaling. I haven't heard that expression before. It's using a journal and basically it's a dotted journal and I would put in, I would print out photos of what my characters look like. So it makes it so much easier having it there on the page for when I'm describing them. So all of their character bios would be on there, the chronological order, even plotting. One of the methods that I use now that I find really helpful is that after every chapter that I've written while drafting, I write down what subplots are occurring in that chapter, the tension level, the the tension changes, and writing down like one or two lines of what happened in that chapter so that when I'm revising, I could easily find the places that I need to address. 
Wow, well, that, that is very organised. That's fantastic. Were you ever tempted to indie publish any of those earlier manuscripts? And what about indie publishing generally for the future? Are you very much happy with the trad publishing process? I see how much work friends of mine who do self-publish, how much work they put into everything. And again, I go back to my cooking and consuming <laughs> Here in that, like, I see how much work they put into it. They have to hire a cover designer. They have to hire like a layout, like basically all the stuff that uh, trade traditional publishing would do. And I understand, yes, for them, it's wonderful because they get all of the measure of control for marketing, what they need to do for the search terms and all of that. And I think of it as too much work for me. That I would be prefer I prefer to be the one that is eating in 10 minutes versus the one that's preparing the food for two hours. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a very efficient process, haven't you? <laughs> yes. Has it been tough launching uh, this book, the, the Vanessa Yu Paris Tea Shop book, in the year of COVID? Has it much things up for you at all or even affected your writing process? How have you been going there? It hasn't affected my writing process in that I've always been the type of person who is comfortable staying home, though now during the pandemic, I'm kind of yearning to go out even though we're in a lockdown and I normally am fine with being home. For Vanessa, it's it's publishing hasn't quite adapted to how they're supposed to do things during a pandemic. So it's affected that in the publicity and the marketing side. Yeah. And, and I think I read somewhere that you missed out on going to a, a book conference that you really wanted to go to, too. It's the first one I was invited to in the U.S. and I couldn't go. It was canceled. Oh. And I also missed my book launch because I was I had all intentions of I already had the baker picked out. She was going to bake <laughs> Madeline's dipped in chocolate with pistachio bits on it to serve at the book launch. I had all of these things kind of planned out and yeah, all of that just kind of went out the window. Oh, what a shame. (laughs) But turning perhaps from the specific books to just talking a little of your wider career, um, you've mentioned about that tension there was in the family because your own ambitions didn't quite match up with what your family thought for you. I think you also are still very interested in art yourself as well. Tell us about your life became before you became a full-time author. What what did you how did you make that transition? I was an artist, a full-time artist selling artwork oh, before okay. I became an author. And this is how this is how when I write, I try to paint the the scenery so for my for my readers. And it's with that artistic eye that I use. For my writing, I do that now. I do illustration and everything more as a hobby in that I don't want to monetize it at all because I feel that if I do that again, it would suck the joy out of it. Yeah. But you very much write with an artist's eye. Yes. Are you guilty of being a workaholic? I'm trying to balance it because I always feel guilty if I am like right now. I just turned in book three to my editor, which won't be out until September 2022. 
And that one is called Sophie Goes Lonely Hearts Club. It's about a matchmaker who returns to her hometown in Toronto and ends up having to match seven old grumpy men. (laughs) Sounds wonderful. (laughs) So you've just turned that in. That's turned in. Um, Book four is not due until next March. And I haven't even start like I've started I have a vague idea of what I want I have the pitch already and I've got a vague synopsis of what I want to tell my editor of what I want to write for that I haven't started yet um I'm working on a YA fantasy right now that I'm revising for my agent I'm it's just it's I feel like I need to I always feel guilty of not working in a sense, it's because I think it's because I was published later in life. Because a lot of people think, oh, you know, the most ideal thing is to be published when you're in your 20s, when you're young, because this is this is great. But I didn't get my first book out until I was Natalie. Natalie came out in 2019. I was 39. So the fact that like your my first book came out close to in my 40s i feel like i've missed out on so so much that i should you know i should be consistently working to catch yeah. up yeah yeah like you have to catch up lost ground yeah i can understand that yeah Look, turning to Roselle as reader this is the joys of binge reading we like to focus on books that people can read for entertainment as well as other things but books that bring fun into their lives. Do you like to read much and are you a binge reader? And if so, what do you read? I've been reading. I try not to read when I'm drafting because I find that I don't want anything to seep in, if that makes any sense, while I'm trying to write something. I love romance. I would buy anything, read anything that Helen Huang writes. And she's written The Kiss Quotient and The Bride Test. And love those books. The last thing that I read that I absolutely adored that had me laughing so much, and she's a friend of mine, and she's also one of my favorite authors, is Sonia Sonia Hartle's debut called Heartbreak for Hire that's coming out in the spring by Simon & Schuster Gallery. And it's a fantastic funny book because she's Sonia just writes these funny books that just make you laugh. And this one is about a woman that works at an agency where her job is to create heartbreak for women who hire her to break the hearts of the men that have broken theirs. (laughs) Oh dear, that sounds fun. At this stage of your career, if you were doing it all over again, is there anything that you would change? And if so, what would it be? I don't think I'm I'm not really a person who goes back and looks at how, you know, looks at, you know, tries to have as many regrets in my life. And that I know that I I got into art school. I could have pursued art, but I decided not to. And I guess, you know, some people would say, oh, what would your life have been like if you had pursued that full time? So for my career, the only thing that I keep telling myself is that it took you this long to get to where you are. And given how everything unfolded, do you like, I would do everything the same again, if that makes any sense. Cause it's, it turned out 
the way that I wanted it to unfold. Maybe not in the time frame that I wanted it to unfold, but it did like happen the way that I've always hoped for. Yes. Yes. Why did you decide to just not do art as a full-time career? Because when I was in art school, I said, I miss writing. (laughs) (laughs) Which is the funniest thing because I could have like, I'm like, I miss writing. And I'm like, okay, so let's go to university. And I went to York University in Toronto and decided to take history and humanities. And I'm like, oh, yes, this is great. And then while I'm writing all the essays, I'm like, I miss drawing naked people in art school. <laughs> but it's, you can never be happy doing the thing like, you know, thinking of greener pastures situation. It's, it's kind of like when I'm writing too, when I'm drafting, I'm like, oh, this is great. It's drafting. But I miss feeling, I miss revising because it means the thing is done and I'm just fixing it. And when I'm revising, I'm like, I really miss drafting when I'm sitting here in my own world and creating everything. It's, it's just, it's always going to be that situation. So I try to, I try to tell myself, like, just try to enjoy where you're at. I know you always want to be some, doing something else, but try to enjoy the thing you're doing at the time you're doing it. Yeah, yeah. You've talked a little bit about what your next plans are. Tell us again a little bit. I didn't quite catch the full name of the book that you've just turned in. That was Sophie. Sophie Goes Lonely Hearts Club. And that's G-O. G-O. Just G-O-S. Yes, G-O apostrophe S. Sophie Goes Lonely Hearts Club. Great. I think actually Vanessa in this book has showed a penchant for matchmaking hasn't she so it's continuing on with that theme a little but but not Vanessa doing it no this is this is why it's a little bit tricky with Vanessa having film and tv rights because Evelyn appears in both books yes yep yep John Wells owns the rights to Evelyn ah so it makes it a little bit trickier in that he's he's I think he said that it was if he had the right people who are passionate about the project enough approach him and say, you know, we want to develop this. Like, you know, he let the rights go, but it's just finding the right person who feels passionate about enough about the project. So that means you can't have Aunt Evelyn in any of your new books in case it, well, it stops anyone but him from having the right to film them. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yes. So I, with Sophie, they are, they are all new characters. Nobody is mentioned from the other books <laughs> <laughs> that are in this one. And it's like the title is basically allusion to the Beatles because Sophie loves the Beatles. That's yes. where you get the the play on words of Sergeant, you know, Pepper's Lonely Hearts yes. Band. Yeah. Lonely cool, Hearts cool. Band, but it's Sophie Goes lonely hearts club yeah that's wonderful and it's funny isn't it how a writer today needs to take these kinds of things into consideration it is i had to make sure that i hired this tried to find a sensitivity reader for some of the rep in this book and it was just really fun to write because it's a love letter to my grandfathers the ones that i love spending time with that have passed and like being able to portray like people who are in their 70s as very like very happy and fulfilled in their lives instead of like what society paints as you know that they're lonely people living in homes that don't really talk to anybody you know what i mean 
Yeah, I do know what you mean. <laughs> it's that sensitivity of yours towards diversity and equality, isn't it, extending to the generations? Well, it is because I'm writing basically about what my grandfathers were like. And one of the characters is loosely based on my father-in-law who has passed recently, and it made it all the more difficult and poignant to be looking at the book and turning it over, knowing that. Oh, that's wonderful, Rizal. That's great. So that one is obviously still in the same kind of genre, the kind of slightly fabulous, lovely poetic sort of writing that you do. It's still in that genre. Is book four going to be a change of pace at all or is it also in that framework? I want it to be different. And it'll still have the fabulism, but I want to push it closer to where fantasy is. Okay, yeah. And I, yes, I still have to pitch my editor and say, hey, I really want to write this. Can I please write it? Thank you very much. (laughs) So you obviously are attracted to fantasy because I think you mentioned some of your earlier books were also fantasy. Do you read fantasy yourself? I read it. I consume it in media. Like I just, I love watching fantasy like shows and it's just, it's just something that I've always loved Yeah, that I wanted to. It's not that I don't love writing women's fiction or, you know, fabulous. I do. I enjoy it, but I also really do love fantasy and I want to be able to move closer towards that eventually. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. We are coming to the end of our time together here. So I'm just wondering, do you enjoy hearing from your readers and where can they find you online? I do, especially when they have such wonderful things to say. <laughs> I mean, I say that I say that with all sincerity and that there is notes that I've received from from readers who are who write me and tell me I am I'm Chinese or I'm Chinese Filipino and it's really wonderful to discover your books and see myself in it, in these stories. And it was something that it was something that I've always wanted to do as a kid where I wanted to read books when I was younger that showed mirrors of me and there weren't that many available. So Yeah, no, there wouldn't have been. I saw your blog about Crazy Rich Asians, the movie, and you you had a sense of excitement about seeing that movie on the on the mainstream cinema didn't you it is it's because the last time i saw an all asian cast that was a blockbuster was joy luck club and that was in that was in the 90s yeah (laughs) that's right um readers can find me on i'm most active on twitter at roselle writer and it's the same handle for instagram that i that i'm also on but my website is rosellelim.com and if they ever want to reach me, there is a contact form there. Oh, that's wonderful. That really is. That's fantastic. Look, it's been great talking today. It really, really has. Thank you so much. It's given us a, a definite sort of sense of seeing into your world, which has been marvellous. Thank you so much for having me, Jenny. Bye. You too. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. 
Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone as a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.